Merry Christmas and welcome again to our service. Uh, Today, actually, we'll be finishing up a series that we've been in uh, regarding prayer or concerning prayer. I hope it's been an encouragement to you to pray more and for us as a church to pray more faith-filled prayers now and in the coming year, for sure. That's at least been my intent with the series, to stir us up to those very things. Today we'll conclude the series with a message on a very specific kind of prayer. Um, in fact, it's, it's a prayer for a very specific thing. One thing, namely the hastening of the day of our Lord Jesus. What this means is that we can and ought to pray that the Lord Jesus would return to earth again and bring to pass all that God has promised. And so to investigate this kind of prayer, uh, praying for the return of Christ, we're going to look actually at the Old Testament, Psalm 98. Psalm 98, that's on page 468 in your pew Bible for your help and for your focus, if you would use that. Psalm 98. Before we dive into this text, though, um, let's pray. Well, Father in heaven, we pray that you would, in fact, send the Christ. There are, of course, many things that we hope you will do between now and that eventual day. Many things that we long for, but we are now at a loss. Until then, in so many ways, none of our deepest longings can be fulfilled and none of your promises can come to full fruition and application to our lives until that day when he comes. So send him. Yes, Lord Jesus, we trust you. You told us it was better for you, uh, for us rather, that you leave so that the Spirit would come. But we know that it will be even better for us when you come back. So come soon, Lord Jesus. If you would right now just pray for yourself in this service, in our focus, that the Lord would minister to our souls today. Father, we pray these things by the Holy Spirit, and in the name of your Son, Jesus, and for his sake, amen. On a day set aside to commemorate the birth of the Lord Jesus, his first advent, it might not be very high on your list of priorities or things that you would want to happen for him to come back this very day. Now, you have a lot of things planned And I will try to keep things as brief as I can in order that you can get on with it. But yet, the next big event on God's calendar, if you will, is the return of our Lord Jesus. Maybe, especially if the holidays are hard for you, for a number of reasons, it is actually high on your list. Maybe the Lord Jesus could just come back today. Wouldn't that be great? my aim to encourage you to long for 
and yearn for the return of our Lord Jesus, the return of our King, and to do so, as I said, mainly from Psalm 98. And I want to show you what the second coming, that without the second coming of Emmanuel, the first coming is just a list of unfinished business. Psalm 98 will help us see all of this. The psalm has three parts, and we'll address them in order. The first part of the psalm is verses 1 through 3. It sets the beginning point of praise. That's what I'm calling it. The beginning point of praise, verses 1 through 3. The second part of the psalm, verses 4 through 9, the first part of verse 9, tell us how the Lord should be praised. And the third part, really it's just the end of verse 9, is the end point of praise. So, beginning point of praise, verses 1 through 3, how the Lord should be praised, verses 4 through 9a, and then the end point of praise. That's how we'll address this. So, verses 1 through 3, Psalm 98. O sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen it, the salvation of our God. From this section, then we see at least five, uh, seven bricks, rather, seven planks in the foundation or the beginning point of praise. And what I mean by beginning point is that, that fertile soil that promotes growth of praise. Because I don't know if this will come as a surprise to you. Maybe if you're a new Christian, you don't resonate with this yet. But uh, the longer you go on on this pilgrim way, the more difficult it can become for, for praise to originate out of your heart. And that beginning point of that of praise that we ought to have towards the Lord, especially as he describes here, comes from somewhere. And verses 1 through 3 give us that beginning point. So seven bricks or planks in this foundation. They, 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 they apply to every act of God's salvation, these seven things that we'll see, and they overlay, they illuminate the birth of our Lord Jesus, which we celebrate today. So first, the first plank or brick, He does marvelous things. God does not do piddly things. All that He does, especially in His mighty works of salvation and deliverance, are full of wonder, magnificence, mystery, glory, and weight. And they are eternally consequential. I'm sure all the rulers of the earth, especially if they were really powerful in their own time, felt like their deeds were consequential. But for the most part, as we read in Ecclesiastes, no one remembers. I'll bet Caesar Augustus thought that all his actions as the emperor of the mighty Roman Empire were consequential. But ironically, the thing we remember most 
is that his taxation is just mentioned as the context for a pregnant virgin Jewish girl named Mary and her husband Joseph getting to a tiny town called Bethlehem. For the most part, no one remembers anything else he did except the history nerds. For the most part, all of it is lost to time. But the Lord, all He does is marvelous and echoes into eternity. And He has sent His own Son, the Eternal One, very God of God, in the flesh. And I promise you, you can explore that mystery for all time and only find more marvelous things about it. About all that happened in the incarnation of our Lord. The second thing we see from these first three verses is that He works salvation in power and holiness. His strong right hand, His holy hand, has worked salvation. The meeting of power, raw divine power and might, with holiness and justice, is a wonderful mega-theme throughout all Scripture. He is all-powerful and He is all-good. And what shows this combination more than anything else He does are His works of salvation. Salvation, pardoning sinners, is not a suspension of His holiness. And it took all His might on display to do it. Of course, there's a display of His sheer might and strength and power in creation, speaking the universe into existence. But that's a small candle compared to the blazing sun of the glory the salvation worked in His Son. The Lord Jesus walking this earth and saving us from our sins, His very birth, His life, His Ministry, His death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and eventual return. In all those things, we see the vivid display of both God's power and His goodness at the same time. So He works His salvation in power and holiness. Third, He works salvation for Him. Look at the curious way that verse 1 ends. He has worked salvation for Him. Is that how you would end this sentence if you were writing this? I mean, the most natural thing to say is He's worked salvation for us. But the psalmist is giving us a very important plank here for our motivation to praise the Lord. We need to have a big God theology. A theology where man is not at the center, but God is. And here it is right here. God works salvation in holiness and might for Himself. He's done His saving work for Him. God saves us out of love, to be sure. But the love of creatures that do not yet exist cannot be the motivation for their existence. That's logically incoherent. 
doesn't make any sense. It's circular. And anyway, the text is super clear right here, not just here, but in many, many other places in Scripture. The Lord saves us for Himself, and this is the best thing for us. This is good news. And it is good news because God has made a way to seek your salvation with the same degree of zeal and eagerness and commitment that He has towards His own glory without being inconsistent with his character, without he himself becoming an idolater. Christmas, though it is the perfect picture of God sending the gift of his Son and giving us everything we need, is actually more about God doing exactly that for himself. He works all this salvation for His own purposes and glory. It's all for Him. Fourth, He makes His salvation known. It's made known as salvation. This is the beginning of verse 2. It's not a secret. It's not something done in a corner. It's not hidden, far-off knowledge only for the philosophers or mystics or theology nerds. The proclamation of God's salvation is for all, and it must be known. On the day when Christ was born, multiple armies of angels, that's what it means, a multitude of heavenly hosts, that means multiple different armies of angels were there proclaiming what God had done. Shepherds went around the countryside proclaiming it. John the Baptist went before Him proclaiming it. And all Israel and Judah heard And for hundreds, even thousands of years, the prophets, the poor, despised, rejected, hated prophets, could not contain their longing and proclaiming of a coming one who would work God's salvation. And that theme has been replaying on repeat ever since. If you will allow me to put it this way, it is as if God is a really big fan of ratings and market saturation. He wants His work of salvation to be known everywhere. He has made it known. He wants the story of His salvation in every home, in our nation, and every nation. It must be told because His salvation must be known. And it's part of the point. Fifth, through This revelation, this proclamation, He reveals His righteousness to all. The message is not, then, merely that God has provided a way for peace and salvation. That is obviously true. But in God sending His own Son to do these very things, to work salvation and to bring peace, the main point is to declare, to prove, once for all, and one day it will be proved in a way that no one will be able to argue with, this one thing, the Lord is righteous. God is in the right. And everything He does is right. And in the coming of Jesus, this is what God is saying. Here is my righteousness on display for you to see, O peoples of the earth. The Lord is in the right and He does all things well. 
6, he keeps his covenant. His steadfast love is what we have access to in his covenant. It says he's remembering his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. He is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. And He will surely do all these things because He wants to prove His trustworthiness and His resilience and His unwavering commitment to His love to those who trust Him. Seventh, He even expo- uh, expands rather the, the, the saving purposes. He expands the scope of His saving purposes and His covenant. This one is a little bit subtle. It's there at the end of verse 3. Look at how it's worded. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. This, this doesn't indicate a, a, a casual or intellectual knowing like, yeah, sure, they've heard of it. Uh, the idea is that the ends of the earth, those who are far off, have come to know the salvation of the Lord. And that's you and me right here in this psalm. Right here in North Idaho, we are the ends of the earth. We are, at least most of us, as far as I know, Gentiles. And the nations have come in because we have seen the salvation of our God in the Lord Jesus. The covenant is now with all those who share Abraham's faith, not just those who share his genetics. And now we see how the Lord should be praised. Verses 4 through nine. We'll go through these very quickly as we get to the end. Verses 4 through 9, the first part. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise to, before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands and let the hills sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. We'll get to the second half of or mainly the the end part of verse 9 in a little bit, but let's just look at how the psalmist tells us, instructs us in all creation to praise the Lord. Again, we'll go through these very quickly. First, the Lord should be praised in joy. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Even though we must lament, even though we must confess sin, those have been two of the messages that we've uh, had in this series on prayer, prayers of lament and prayers of confession. Yet, it is not that only sorrow is our lot. Indeed, it is our privilege and our destiny to praise the Lord while on this earth and to do exactly what Paul says, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. That's the Christian life, brothers and sisters. If that twin experience of sorrow and rejoicing simultaneously is something that just doesn't make any sense, delve deeper. Associate yourself with the heart of God and the heart of your Messiah who was the happiest man who ever lived yet acquainted with grief. 
The aim is then towards joy. It is not towards sorrow to stay there forever. Even the given the sorrow we must carry around until He comes, we are to praise the Lord with joy. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Second, the Lord should be praised with singing. Before He gets to any of the instruments that He mentions, the Bible, not just in this place, in many other places, makes clear that the human voice, the voices of redeemed sinners... Redeemed and forgiven rebels turned into worshipers ought to be the main feature of our worship. The dominant note of a worship service when it includes music is singing. But that's not where we should stop. It's not just the sound of the human voice. Third, the Lord should be praised with our best artistic efforts. Look at all these instruments. The lyre, the horn, the trumpet. Are we in violation because we don't have a liar? Right, that would be the full, outright, regulative principle, wouldn't it? No. I think if the psalmist were writing today, he would list the most popular instruments now in, in our time and in our culture. And the main point is this. That we're to bring Him our best and the fruits of our labor Do everything as unto the Lord. And no, it doesn't have to be an exceptional high quality, but our effort, our zeal should be towards Him. It seems as if the psalmist is trying to cobble together everything he can to make it really special for the Lord. He's summoning everything to the job. Praise the Lord with all this stuff. And the best that you can offer. Fourth, the Lord should be praised loudly. We, His people, especially when we gather, are not at liberty in deciding how or when or if we will praise Him. It is a moral obligation for you and the musicians and everyone to sing and play loudly. And there is a reason that the Lord surrounds His people with shouts of deliverance. We ought to surround His throne with shouts of praise. Fifth, the Lord should be praised for Him. We saw this in the previous section that He saves people for Him. And it's, it's an obvious point that it can get lost. Praise is for Him. The best thing for us is for all of our attention to be on Him and what He desires of us, not what we might want. Sixth, the Lord should be praised by all creation. It's not just the people gathered in the temple or the place where they're worshiping. He's not satisfied with that. The psalmist is so audacious, or maybe not so much considering our destiny, he commands the whole of creation, all the earth, the seas, the rivers, the hills, to praise the Lord. I think that actually helps us understand what our role will be in the new heavens and the new earth. It's said that the whole creation groans with longing for the revealing of the sons of God. There's a lot we could say about that. You know I want to. But have you ever wondered if if the creation, the the word there is cosmos, 
if the stars, the galaxies, and the creatures, the rocks, and the hills, and the rivers long for the day of adoption more than we do? And this praise needs an end point. We'll get to that in a minute. Seventh, the Lord should be praised by all people, all peoples. It's the same word for nations, different people groups. This is a repeating the theme that we saw before, that God's salvation is revealed to the ends of the earth. So, all people from the ends of the earth and everything that has breath should praise the Lord. And now we come to the end point. Of praise. So we've seen the beginning point. God has revealed His salvation. He does marvelous things by His mighty hand and His holy arm. Here's how all, all the ways that we should praise Him because of that. And that's typically where we stop. But there is an arrow in this psalm, the way it's written, towards something else. And one of the reasons is, as you read verses 1 through 3, it's almost idyllic. To the point where if you're, if you're reading this critically, you might come and say, you know what? Some of these things haven't fully happened yet. Not all the ends of the earth have heard, have they? Have we seen the fullness of all the promises of God and the remembering of God's steadfast love coming to pass towards His people? Or are we still waiting for a few things? So there's an end point of praise, and that's what the last part of verse 9 speaks. So, let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. So all those beginning points of praise lead us to this place. Something else has to happen to finish the job that Jesus started when He was here in His first coming. There is a day coming when He will finish the job. It is the day of judgment. All of this praise has an end point and it is rooted in the salvation and loving kindness of God. And it looks towards the day of judgment. This feels out of place, but this is where the psalm goes. Does this even work on a Christmas Day sermon? To speak about Judgment Day? You know, a great number of people will really enjoy and eat up a good Christmas celebration. But not all of them have yielded their hearts to the Lord Jesus. As long as Jesus stays in the manger, we have no problem. But when He grows up, He tells us how to live. He loves us in uncomfortable and humbling ways. And He tells us in no uncertain terms just how bad we are and then He dies for us, that asks a lot more of a person. And then He rises from death and claims to have been given all authority on heaven and earth, being installed as King over everything. That demands a lot more of a person than a little baby in a feed trough. 
the Father sending Jesus again to do what verse 9 says, to judge the earth in righteousness and all the nations in equity, does not sound as nice and as pretty as a baby with first-time parents and some eclectic onlookers. But this is what it was about. That little baby in the manger was none other than the Son of Man who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. He is the root of Jesse, the son of David. He is the great I Am. That is Yahweh Himself. And He's coming back. And not like He came the first time. He comes to judge. And this is a good thing. This is good news. This is the basis of praise for this psalm. That's amazing, and it is so instructive for us. This psalmist is praising God because of His promise to come and to judge in equity and righteousness. This is the sound foundation. This is the sure foundation for praying for the return of Christ. This world is not as it should be. And the Lord is not going to let it continue forever. He sees and He knows. And the holy response of God to sin and rebellion of this world is wrath. That gruesome display, that beautiful baby growing up and becoming a man, in that gruesome display of God's wrath, mangled, and crushed, hanging there on a terrible Roman cross. That's what let us, lets us know that this was about dealing with God's wrath against sin. That's how He brings peace on earth. Don't you see? And the reason He has to come back again is because there are those who reject His terms of peace. This is why He was born. You will call His name Jesus for He will save His people from their sins. And the only way He can do that is by bearing the penalty in our place. These are the only terms of peace that God will ever or can ever offer you or offer anyone. The day of wrath is coming because many refuse, despise, or mock God's all-gracious offer of salvation. One day, on the day of Jesus Christ, every eye will see Him, every knee will bow, the proud will be brought low, the humble will be exalted, the kingdoms of this earth will come to nothing and be judged, the thoughts and intentions of all hearts will be revealed, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. But... The day of the Lord is our only hope because it finishes all those things that began in verse, verses 1 through 3. The Apostle Paul even speaks of the day of adoption. Right? Adoption is like the core of the gospel that we would speak about, but the day of adoption has yet to come. We receive the seal or the, the down payment, the deposit in receiving the Holy Spirit, but we yearn for the day of adoption. We yearn for the day of salvation. We wait for that day when we will be saved from the wrath of God. These things are not done yet. 
And if the Lord is not coming back, we can just close up shop right now. There is no reason to meet here every Sunday, let alone on Christmas Day, and talk about these things if He's not coming back to finish what He started. Unless He is alive and coming back, there's no point to any of this. So, if that man on the horrid Roman cross is your hope and trust, then this day we've been talking about, this day that is terrible and awesome and coming soon, will be nothing but blessing and life for you. Through trust in Christ, you will be safe because He has promised to keep you. Through trust in Christ, you will be healed because He has promised to reverse the curse and to make your heart, your soul, your body something that even Adam and Eve before the curse couldn't even imagine. Oh, Zion will be so much better than Eden. Through trust in Christ, you will be vindicated. The Lord Himself will stand up for you and proclaim in your case that you were in the right. Because He has promised to justify those who have faith in Christ. Those who hope in Him. Through trust in Christ, you and all your brothers and sisters and this whole creation will be made new. So, it makes all the sense in the world, even on a day like today, to long for the day. And to pray with all earnestness that the Lord would send the Christ again to us. Prayer changes things. James says, you have not because you ask not. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. The clear implication of that text, as we looked at several weeks ago, is that if we would but pray rightly, so much of the things that we need would come to fruition by God's hand, including the return of our Lord. Don't try to solve it in your head. God will take care of how your will, your prayers, and His sovereignty all work together. The day is fixed in the secret counsels of God, but our prayers factor into when it is to be. And if you try to figure it out, you'll only end up with a headache or a seminary degree and a headache and nowhere closer to an answer. But I, I'll just go ahead and give you the answer. I think this is the Bible's answer. God's Spirit Himself motivates us to pray. There's God who works in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. So the Spirit is at work in us, motivating us not just to pray, but to pray for certain things including, maybe especially, praying for the return of our Lord. The Spirit Himself is the reason we groan inwardly for the day of adoption. The only questions I will leave you with are these. Do you yearn for the day? If not, what needs to happen in your heart? Will you pray for that desire? If you do desire that day, will you pray with us and for the rest of us that God would awaken that desire in us 
and that His Spirit would move effectively and with power in us to pray. Luke 18. And will not God give justice to His elect who cry out to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. Acts chapter 3. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. And then 2 Peter 3. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? May it be said of us, may it be said of us, brothers and sisters, that we were the ones to give Him no rest until He sent the Lord to us again. Let's pray. Father, we pray earnestly, please, in these moments, stir in our hearts to desire this genuinely, that the Lord would come. And as we sing this final song, help us think of all that His second coming means in the fulfillment of all of these promises. In Jesus' name, Amen.